The scripture for today's teaching is Mark 11, 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they said to them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. All right, you guys can uh, go ahead and grab a seat. Uh, If we hadn't had a chance to meet, my name is Aaron Addison. I get to serve as one of the pastors here at Frontline South. And hey, I just want to say again, if you are visiting us today, uh, maybe you're family or friend of some of our people that were baptized, uh, I just want to say welcome. We're really, really glad that you're here with us. And uh, and we're really hopeful that um, that today Jesus is going to speak to you, and I, I just I just want you to know this is a safe place to ask questions. This is a safe place to bring our doubts, to bring things that we're really not sure of, and uh, and and I I just want you to know that that we are here. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you afterwards. Come and grab some of us. And uh, and and we're just we're just really grateful that you're here with us this morning. So. Um, Kind of to kind of to kick us off, uh, I, I'm a bit of a I, I like news. I'm kind of a political kind of junkie. I know that's kind of weird. It's, in this day and age, it's like kind of I, I I don't know. It's like I like internal turmoil or something like that. But um, but if you follow it all, it's kind of interesting to see uh, in Congress the way that they name certain bills when they're passed, right? Because sometimes they kind of do like the Baptist thing. They try to like spell out some like witty word with all these kind of technical terms. In this past week, uh, the U.S. House of Representatives passed a bill, which they called the Build Back Better Act. And the reason they called it that was because that was the presidential slogan, the campaign slogan for President Biden. It was kind of the way of being like, hey, this kind of sums up everything, his agenda and everything else. And slogans for presidential campaigns, they kind of have this way of rallying people behind this idea or this agenda, or even a leader. So I don't know if any of you have seen something like this before, uh, but this is a Make America Great Again hat. President Trump uh, capitalized on the slogan, Make America Great Again. Or maybe a few years earlier with President Obama, you've maybe seen this before with the slogan that he inspired people with, Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Slogans end up taking on, and these are, I think, some good examples, end up taking on much more meaning than just the mere word suggests. They're intended to kind of promote, hey, this is the kind of government you can expect from this leader. Does that make sense? It kind of lets you know, this is what is going to drive this leader, drive this government and this agenda. And here's why I get to that, not to actually get into politics whatsoever, but 
we've now reached the place in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is preparing to enter into Jerusalem. And the reason he's coming to Jerusalem is he's coming on a mission to receive his kingdom. He's coming to be crowned as the long-awaited king that the people of Israel had waited for. And much like a campaign slogan kind of carries the idea of the campaign, the idea of this leader, Jesus, in kind of this passage that we read in coming into the city, he is going to sum up for us his agenda, his government, his kingdom. In many ways, this kind of event that goes on sums up who he is as a king, which kind of fits with what we have uh, been studying. So we've been actually looking at the gospel of Mark going from beginning to end really since Easter, so for a long time. And if you've been with us for a bit, we've talked about that there are two kind of, uh, well, there's like one big key to understanding this book. The gospel of Mark is split into two sections. And the first section really asks this question, who is Jesus? Jesus comes on the scene, he starts doing things, and everyone's like, who actually is this person? Who's doing these miraculous, uh, this miraculous stuff? And that first section kind of ends where Peter, it all clicks for him, and he makes this bold confession that Jesus is the Christ, which what he means by that is the Messiah. And the idea here is that Jesus was this king who would rule all kings, that he was this king who would actually bring justice to the earth. He's this king who would deliver Israel from its oppressors. He's this king whose kingdom would stand forever. And since that time, things have kind of shifted in this book. And the question's no longer who is Jesus. Instead, the question now is, what does it mean for Jesus to be king? What does it mean? So now we got the answer. Jesus is king. Okay, we got that. But what does that actually mean? And so for a little bit, Jesus has been teaching us. He's been giving hints. But now... Jesus is going to make a really bold statement about what it means to be king. He's going to start pressing the envelope. He's going to start ruffling some feathers. Jesus, in this scene, he makes this grand entrance into the city of Jerusalem, and he's going to show us the kind of king that he is. So today there's going to be three things, uh, three things of how Jesus is king that I want you to see. So first, Jesus is the king of power. Jesus is the king of power. So just outside Jerusalem, Jesus, he's setting the stage for entering the city. And again, he's coming to Jerusalem to receive the throne. He wants to set the tone for his kingdom. But before he arrives, we get this really strange story that to be honest, has just always puzzled me. So I'm gonna read it again for us, the first six verses of this chapter. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, which is a mountain near Jerusalem, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you're going to find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said 
and they let them go. Now, this is a really weird story that prompts all kinds of questions. Like, how did Jesus know that there was this cult there? Um, Why didn't Jesus just go and get it himself? Did they really just steal a donkey? Is that really what just happened? And why in the world would these bystanders seeing someone taking a donkey that they know isn't theirs go, okay, yeah, that's fine. That's no big deal. Like, what is going on? Well, some commentators, they've tried to kind of, actually many commentators try to sidestep these tough questions. So they say that maybe Jesus actually knew the owner of this cult and prearranged to borrow it with some sort of code phrase. There's some like espionage going on here or something. I don't know. But it just doesn't, that doesn't add up. It just doesn't make sense. Why wouldn't Jesus himself just go talk to the owner and get the cult if that was the case? And how could Jesus have prearranged it if he literally just arrived into town? So other people kind of say, well, maybe the owner's with Jesus. And so that's why he didn't, he wasn't there whenever all this went down. And it's like, okay, well, why didn't the owner just go get his cult instead of risking two people getting arrested for stealing? If this is what Mark was trying to get at, something as simple as that, I think it would have just read, and they went and got a cult. But instead, there's all this detail describing what's going on. It seems like the most likely explanation is that there's something supernatural going on here. There's something more to Jesus than meets the eye. Jesus, he somehow knows that this cult was there and he sends his disciples out to get it. So why? Why? Jesus literally, he is... He, he is not far from Jerusalem. He could just walk straight into the city. Why is now, towards the end of his long journey, is he going to get an animal to ride on? What is the deal? Well, Jesus, he determined to kind of ride into Jerusalem on a donkey to show that he was indeed the Christ, the king. So the colt, which really in Greek, this word is just like a young donkey. So think of a little donkey, was a very specific symbol in the Jewish mind. So about 600 years before Jesus was born, there was this prophet, Zechariah, who looking forward to the coming of the king says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. And then listen, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus, literally in the beginning of his ministry, is doing everything he could to avoid making a scene. And he's now going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. And for every Jew who saw this, alarm bells would be going off in their heads. They would get what he was saying, which was this. This man is claiming to be the Messiah. He's taking on the image of the Christ that Zechariah talked about. But think of everything that needed to happen for Jesus to get a cult like this. Like he didn't go buy one or raise one or anything like that. He got one in the strangest way possible. And think of everything that needed to happen. One, there needed to be a cult in that exact village where Jesus was outside of, on that exact day and time. Secondly, that cult had to be tied out in the open where the disciples could get to it. Third, the cult had to be one on which no one had ever sat. That's what Jesus had said. 
And then fourth, Jesus gives the disciples the exact words they need to say that somehow convinces these bystanders to let them go free. And for all four of these to take place, a thousand small decisions and events had to fall exactly into place. This kind of reminds me a bit of whenever I met my wife, Kara. So we both worked at the same bank, but at different branches. So we didn't know each other, never interacted with one another. There never was really any opportunity for that. And I ended up having to do some training and ended up getting sent to her branch of all places for a week. And throughout that week, didn't really talk to her at all. And the last day, I uh, happened to go into the lunchroom and she's in there reading her Bible and she's reading the book of the Bible that as, as a church where I was at at the time, we were going through that exact same book. And it kind of sparked up conversation. It was like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And uh, ended up leading to us being friends. And I say that to all say this, there were so many little small things in the story as I look back and think that it's like, how in the world did that happen? Like literally, if I had gone into the break room like 30 minutes earlier, I would have never met her. Like if I hadn't have gotten that job in the first place, like if I hadn't have gotten uh, the training that I need, all of those things had to fall exactly into place for this moment where I ended up meeting my wife. And the point of this story is I think similar where this is not some happy accident. This isn't describing being in the right place at the right time. This is a flex of the power of King Jesus. Jesus is demonstrating for us that he's not just a political ruler or some mighty warrior. Instead, Jesus can orchestrate events as he sees fit. He is the one who holds all creation in the palm of his hands. Already in the gospel of Mark, we have seen Jesus heal the sick, change the weather, raise the dead, walk on water, and appear in his glory as the Son of God. And now, in his power and sovereignty, he is orchestrating events, providing exactly what he needs to fulfill a prophecy from half a century earlier. This is why later on in the New Testament, this is what it says of Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is a mighty king of power. He, in this small, seemingly mundane event of getting a donkey, Jesus is showing that he's a king unlike any other. He is a king with authority, not just over people, but over heaven and earth itself. And here's the point. We can trust him. If Jesus is in control to make all of this happen, then we know that he is in the details of our life. We know that he is there with us. Maybe things aren't looking good for you. Maybe this week you got some bad news. Maybe there's some worries about what is going to come in the future. And Jesus is trying to show us that he is the king 
over everything, over our lives, over our work, over the interactions that we have with people, the random things that happen in our life, Jesus is king. Maybe today you're here and that is God sovereignly working to bring you to the place to hear this. Jesus is the king of power. Second thing, Jesus is the king of humility. Jesus is the king of humility. So as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, here's kind of how the scene unfolds in verse eight. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. A scene kind of like what Jesus happened wasn't, what happened to Jesus wasn't uncommon in his day. Uh, Throughout history, kings or military leaders were often welcomed into cities with pomp and ceremony, just like this. It's kind of a picture of this Roman, what they would call it as triumphs. And these were these ceremonies, these celebrations, these parades that were often shows of honor and power and victory. So as the emperor would ride into the city, often he'd be surrounded by his army and he would be leading slaves and captives that had fallen to the power and might of the empire. And it was a way to kind of celebrate the emperor and his great power and might. But take a step back for a second and look at what Jesus does. We come to call this passage the triumphal entry of Jesus in Mark 11, and it looks nothing like this. All these people, soldiers, stallions, riding in, waving. That's not what it looks like. In fact, Jesus' scene is actually really comical and ironic. Here's what I mean. Jesus comes running, riding into the city, not on a war horse, but on a young donkey. I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of a young donkey before. Look at that. Don't you just want to like snuggle up with that? I mean, come on. So cute. Here's, but is anyone intimidated by that? No. That is like a farm animal at the petting zoo, right? That's not this majestic steed that you ride into, into a city with. And Jesus probably doesn't even look right riding on it because the thing is so like out of proportion, right? Again, like the word here is this is a young donkey. It's small. And Jesus is sitting there riding in on it, his feet probably just barely off the ground. When people saw Jesus, they were anything but intimidated by his power and might riding in on this gallant steed. But it gets even worse. Of course, the donkey doesn't have a saddle because it's never been ridden on, because, probably because it's so small. And his disciples just say, well, we'll just take off our clothes and make you like a saddle. So they start doing that. And then rather than the red carpet treatment, the road ends up getting covered with cloaks and leaves and branches. It's probably just a hot mess. And look around, like Jesus isn't leading a procession of soldiers or captives. Jesus is surrounded by travel-worn, probably smelly peasants, like his disciples. This isn't a triumphal procession. This is a ragtag affair. And this 
is exactly what Jesus intended. Jesus, he's going to Jerusalem to be crowned king, and this is the kind of procession he chooses. Surrounded by nobodies who are throwing their clothes on the ground, singing and shouting, throwing branches down. That is what Jesus chooses. He uses his immense power to ride into Jerusalem in the way of humility. He could have provided a stallion for himself. Jesus could have recruited an army of immeasurable strength, but Jesus chose this, this ragtag. This is his triumphal entry. And the reason this feels so strange to us is because we don't get what the kingdom of God is about. Jesus, he is the king who told us this just a chapter earlier. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the one who said, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Again, he tells us, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, nothing to bring, empty-handed, like a child, whoever doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. The kingdom of Jesus is not about establishing a political agenda. It's not about acquiring friends and money and power. Following Jesus, it's about, it's, it's being willing to join the ragtag. It's being willing to cast everything down and humble ourselves under the rule of Jesus. I love the picture of the disciples that I think is a picture for us where we too have to lay down our cloaks to get trampled on underneath Jesus. Our lives, our image, our reputation. Jesus wants our hearts. He wants everything from us. And we have to lay that down at his feet. And this is what we witness happening in baptism. Baptism is this symbol of our death in laying down our lives to follow Jesus. And I love the idea that everyone who has followed Jesus passes through these waters. The young, the old, the rich, the poor. You have millionaires who are laying down their life for Jesus next to homeless people who are laying down their life to Jesus in the waters of baptism. We are a family and we have come to join what seems like this ragtag affair of poor nobodies who have been transformed by the grace of Jesus. This reminds me of what uh, another prophet Isaiah said a long time before Jesus was born. It says, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. So God says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart 
of the contrary. So Jesus, he is the mighty king who governs the universe with his power, but he's also the lowly king. Surrounded by the lowly and the humble who have laid down their lives to follow him. Finally, the third thing, Jesus is the king of power, he's the king of humility, and finally, Jesus is the king of presence. So the people surrounding Jerusalem, they realize what Jesus is saying here. They kind of pick up on it at least a little bit, at least in part. And they see that Jesus is claiming to be this long-awaited king. And overwhelmed by the moment, they begin shouting. So it says this in verse 9 and 10. Those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Every time I read this, what I kind of think of is, uh, is English soccer matches. So Americans with sports, when we get excited about sports, we just scream, right? We just go, ah! But... Uh, in England, like soccer matches, they sing and chant. And they may actually spend an hour and a half chanting the same thing over and over again in their excitement, dancing up and down. And that's kind of what's going on here. They see Jesus coming in and they bust out in this chant. They're, they're singing it together. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're quoting from a Psalm, actually, Psalm 118. And the word Hosanna That's actually this Hebrew word that what it means is save us. We pray, we beg, save us. And at the time, the Jews, here's what they believed. They thought the Messiah was going to come in and was going to deliver them from Roman oppression. Right? Israel at this time is ruled by the Romans. And so they thought Jesus or, well, they thought the Messiah is going to come in and they're going to kick out, he's going to kick out the Romans. He's going to ascend to the throne. He's going to destroy our enemies. He's going to save us. But what happens next took them by surprise. In verse 11, so Jesus entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. Now wait, what? Jesus doesn't go to the palace but to the temple. Why? Jesus, the long-awaited king, the one they expected, was not the king they expected. What they needed was not a new government. They needed a new way to live. They needed to be saved not from Roman rule, but from their own brokenness and sin. And so Jesus... He doesn't head to the palace. He goes straight for the temple. The palace was this place of power, but the temple, listen, the temple was a place of presence. And here's what I mean. In the Old Testament, the very presence of God dwelt with the people of Israel in the temple. The temple was the place that God himself dwelt. But something happened. Hundreds of years before Jesus came, something happened. The people of God, they rebelled against him. They lived their own way. They resisted God's rule. 
And this prophet, Ezekiel, he ends up seeing this vision. And just track with me here. He ends up seeing this vision where the presence of God is in the temple and it starts moving. And it moves out of the temple into the city of Jerusalem. And then it moves out of Jerusalem and it ends up resting on the Mount of Olives, which is just outside of the city. And this was the utmost sign of judgment that God was saying, I am withdrawing my presence from you. God removed his presence from the temple. But notice what Jesus does. Jesus comes down from where? The Mount of Olives, where Ezekiel years and years ago saw the presence of God go. He comes down from the Mount of Olives. He enters Jerusalem and he comes into the temple. And here's the point. Jesus is giving us a sign that he himself is the presence of God. And he is restoring the presence of God on earth. He comes not with violence and war, but he comes to bring God's presence, which is good news for us. When we feel distant, when we feel alone, Jesus is offering to you today his peace and his presence. He's offering for you to come into his kingdom and to receive the very presence of God to dwell with you and in you by the Spirit. Now, verse 11, the last verse, might be the most anticlimactic verse in the whole Bible. So it says, Jesus enters Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Jesus makes this huge scene, He goes into the temple and then he goes, you know what, guys? It's kind of late. Let's head back. And he leaves and he goes back exactly where he just came from. When Jesus makes this unexpected turn, when he turns from the palace to the temple, here's what I want you to notice. Where did everyone go? The crowds are gone. The singing's gone. The shouting is gone. The only people seemingly left with him are his 12 disciples. The people, they were ready to go with Jesus when they thought he was coming in power. They were even willing to put up with him when they thought he, when he was coming in humility, but they couldn't stomach what Jesus was trying to say and do. That Jesus was coming to bring presence. Jesus, the king, he's welcomed outside the city, but when he comes into our lives, when he comes into our hearts, when he gets in all of our business, we typically are nowhere to be found. That's a little too much for us, but Jesus wants all of us. Jesus is calling us into his kingdom. He is calling us to lay down our very lives to follow him. And to receive him, we have to receive him as the king he really is. 